You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Burns, and on this wonderful Labor Day, what is it, September 7th, 2015, we are Future Theater Live broadcasting from the banks of a very slowly running Primrose Creek in Solberry, Pennsylvania, on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Our host is the great jackal, Angel Espino, who recommended uh, a fabulous movie. Thank you, Angel. Say hello to everybody, Angel. Hello, everybody, and Angel. Wait. And anyway. our <laughs> guests and our guests tonight are uh, Ruben Uriarte and Noe Torres, and we're talking about um, not just the, the Texas Roswell, but the passing away of Colonel Willingham, and there's a phenomenal story that Ruben and Noe are going to tell us. But I, I just wanted to start. I just wanted to start with um, thanking Angel. Angel had recommended to us that we had to see Straight Outta Compton. And I was being, I was kind of demurring. Oh, it's rap. I really, but it was really, it was really a fascinating motion picture. I, 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 I was really impressed because at least to me, the, um, first of all, it was about the, um, uh, the 1980s and 90s for the most part. So, but it was also about the birth of a new art form and why. And I was really impressed with that. I mean, the larger issue was a birth of a new art form. Well, I was demurring yep. also. Because I thought, oh, this is going to be terribly violent. It's just going to be one violent moment after the other. And it wasn't that way. At not all. at all. Yeah. Not yeah. at all. In fact, the violence is, that's this awful man, Shug. Shug, oh, Shug Knight. Shug Knight, yeah, Shug Knight. What uh, a the crazy villain, person. He's like the number one villain in hip-hop history. What, what was his point. problem, by the way? Just anger management or something? I don't know. You know, the movie portrays him uh, in a way that a lot of people would say that that's how he was. Uh, in, in in a personal level, but when he ever, whenever he was on camera on like a TV show or wherever he did some kind of like guest spot on radio or something, it, it always uh, seemed like he wasn't that guy that everybody portrayed him as. You know, he always seemed a little bit different, calmer, cooler, uh, not as uh, vicious. But then you hear the stories of some of the stuff that this guy did behind the scenes on Death Row Records, and the movie only showed a couple of glimpses of how really messed up he was. And some but what of the was his what was his what was his compensatory talent? Well, he was a, a tough guy. That's it. He had no rapping ability, no producing ability. Couldn't make beats. Couldn't, like he wasn't a producer. That's why he latched onto Dr. Dre and got yeah. him to do all the music because he didn't know how to do it himself. But he was a tough guy. He got. And in fact, one thing that was omitted from the movie, which a lot of people were upset at, is they don't show you the scene how he creates Death Row Records with Dr. Dre, how he gets the funding for it. And mm. a lot of people, a lot of people wanted happened, to see this happened, scene. What happened there? Well, the 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 way he got his money together to create Death Row Records uh, had to do with Vanilla Ice. Vanilla Ice. Oh, really? Had, yeah, Vanilla <laughs> Ice had the the number one song in the country in the '90s called Ice Ice Baby. The mm -hmm. album sold like 10 million records. The uh, the song sold like 20 million copies in the single. Huge album, huge record. Right. Uh, there's a, a friend of Suge Knight's whose rap name was Chocolate Bandit. I'm not kidding. That's really the guy's name. Mm -hmm. And he was a co-writer on Ice Ice Baby. 
He actually co-wrote most of the lyrics and the hook. He never got paid credit for his work on the song. And he is credited on the album. You can actually see his name on the album as the writer of the song. But he never got paid royalties that he deserved. So he, along with Suge Knight and a few other guys, went to a Vanilla Ice's hotel room. And they pretty much uh, roughed him up, hung him over a balcony, and told him, Listen, if you don't sign over all this cash right now, we're going to drop you from the balcony and you're going to be dead. So well, they wait, literally strong-armed into signing over like, right. like so, $5 million. So Vanilla Ice is a white guy, right? Well, yes. Okay, did he give Chocolate <laughs> his name, or did Chocolate give Vanilla no, no, his no, no, name? No, 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 no. Chocolate and Vanilla worked together, and it's mm-hmm. ironic and funny, but uh, they both had their names on separate occasions. Well, tell us, about the, with the, each tell other. us about the star of the movie, a fellow that I don't know anything about. His name is Easy E. Well, Easy E was the guy who bankrolled um, NWA. He's the guy who put the money forward. He was actually a real street criminal. Like he was, the guy was living the life, as they say, wait, the wait, gangster the, life. The guy who was the young, the guy the whole movie started Eric. with. Eric. 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 Yeah, Eric Wright. His real name is Eric Wright. Easy E was his rap name. Um, originally, he wasn't a rapper. The guy was just a street thug, you know, criminal. And they brought him on board to see if he would finance the group and finance ah, the record label. So he was, but he was their friend also. He was a friend. Yeah, he was a friend. Like a lot of people have friends. Some people that are not even criminals have criminal mm-hmm. friends. It's just the way it is. So they brought this guy on board because he had a lot of money. He was making a lot of money on the streets and he had street credibility. And they brought him on board to give him that little extra street credibility plus to finance the projects for NWA. And it wasn't even supposed to be NWA at that so time. So he's it was really not. Records. Okay, so he's not uh, the guy. Okay, when, when the movie starts, there's a guy lying on the floor, and his I think his sister or his mom comes in and yells at him. He's lying on the floor among nothing but albums, and he's kind of taking notes. Was that Ice Cube instead? Was that that? I thought that was Andre. Yeah, that was Dr. Dre. Okay, that's what I wanted to figure because that's yeah, do- when do- I'm. Yeah. Dr. Dre is the the mastermind behind all the music. Um, look, they they all had their own role on in the group. Uh, Dr. Dre was the mastermind behind the music. DJ Yellow was the main DJ when they went on concerts. Uh, Ice Cube wrote most of the lyrics along with MC Ren. They were the lyricists of the group. And Eazy-E was the guy who was financing the whole thing. Okay. But at the same time, Eazy-E was also the most charismatic mm-hmm. when it came to doing interviews and stuff. And, and who was and the he... best rapper in front of oh, a microphone? Uh, that would be a toss-up between Ice Cube and uh, MC Ren. Both okay. of them were the best okay. rappers in the group. But they, they didn't have that particular voice that connected to the audience that Eazy-E had. That's why there's a one scene in, in the movie when they're like trying to get rappers to rap one of their songs. Yeah, that's what scene I'm thinking be, of. Yeah. Right, they're, yeah. they're about to do this track and they're going to put that on an album as a compilation and the rappers have a conflict with Ice Cube and they leave and then they put Eazy-E in the booth and he starts rapping the song. And like that's an actual event. That really happened exactly like the way they put it in the movie where he just rapped along. They didn't even know what he was doing, but mm-hmm. it just sounded good. Mm-hmm. And then Dr. Yeah. Dre pieced together, literally, he would tell him, like, say this line, say that line. And he, w- he was reading lines just on the beat, but he wasn't really, like, rapping, like, the whole verse at one time. He was just okay. reading off lines, and then Dre went in, edited everything together, and made a verse, and made well, it sound other like a real people, song. Were lots of other people rapping at this time and recording it also? Oh, of course. There's a lot of rap acts at that time. So these guys did not invent this? No, no, no. God, no. Rap has been around for... Look, the first known rapper was like, what, 78, 79, 80, around there? Okay. The Sugar Hill Gang. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Sugar Hill Gang came out before them. Run DMC were a huge group in the mid-80s. That's the group that I remember was Run DMC. Beastie Boys were huge. 
Well, Run DMC were a bunch. They uh, they weren't street guys. They were middle class guys. No, they're middle right. class guys from Queens or someplace like that. Uh huh. Yep. Well, here's the thing. What changed in hip hop in the late '80s? Uh, what NWA really is credited for is not because they invented hip-hop, because they didn't do that. Mm -hmm. What they did was they ushered in an era of real rap, of realistic lyrics. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you Mirroring about. the image of what's really going on in the streets and giving the world an eye view of, of the streets that they don't get to see on an everyday well, that, basis. Well, that's why I asked you during the movie, and I was glad to get the answer during the movie. What, what Are these the real lyrics? Are these the real songs? Yeah. And that's cool to know that. Okay, so here's my question. Yeah. Are you telling me that during the era when this was all becoming popular, that young people knew that there was a fight between these members and that they were sort of dissing each other in oh, rap yes. songs as the different yes. albums would come out? So you guys were listening to a soap opera, basically. In addition yeah, we, to all the other stuff, you kind of knew, <laughs> and you kind of couldn't wait to see what's the next guy going to say. Pretty much. Look, the thing is with, with hip-hop, even before NWA and the whole gangster rap movement, hip-hop has always been about battling and MCs going at each other and battling each other. Uh, that's the root of hip-hop. You know, okay, the, let me ask, can I ask you the dumbest other. question on the planet. Why What's not? What's battle? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Go ahead. Because, uh, you know, nobody seems to be able well, it's a dumb question, but I grew up in the era of um, uh, records, you know, long uh, LPs. You put them on a turntable and you very carefully put the needle on them. And right. you get in a lot of trouble if you make a scratch or something. So tell me what guys, okay, when guys are doing that with records on turntables and they're actually scratching them and stuff, are they using real records and ruining real records or do they have special records for that purpose? No, it's regular records. It doesn't ruin the record. It's just, The needle is made specifically not to ruin the record. It just, it does the effect of the need for scratching. Uh Man, but in the beginning, I'm sure that statement. wasn't the case, right? In, in the beginning, uh, when people be trying it oh, out. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, of course. But were there special records that people would like to ruin? I mean, were they, in fact, they were... No, no, no. If the, record, if the record got scratched, you just went out and bought another record. It didn't matter. Just, okay. And was. basically, what you would do is, you would you have to use a fresh record every time? Because would the scratches interfere? Oh, with? no, no, no. No, I, I, when I DJed, I used the same record hundreds of times. Okay, so what is... Can you tell us what the point is of the scratching, just to make a sound and a beat? Yeah, just to make it sound good. But don't you sometimes also play part of the record over... In other words, okay, it starts out with real records, and then you say then in the newer, what they use now, it doesn't actually scratch the record, but are you using fake, like, discs <laughs> now that are just, like, show discs and you can scratch on them endlessly? No. No. Just curious. Just curious. Yes, the, the, the way that scratching got really you know popular in the 80s just to give you a, a hip-hop 101 for a second nancy mm -hmm. uh the reason that scratching got popular is because a lot of djs would use it uh to introduce different samples into a, to a track they're playing what for do example, you mean what do you mean what do you mean by oh. introduce like make a break uh, an well, oral me, moment can, let me finish Hold on so what they would do is they would put on a regular beat right that'll be your regular beat and then as the rapping is going on or whatever from the other artists who are rapping on stage they would throw on a second record. That's why there's multiple turntables on a DJ system. They would turn on another record, and that record would have a sample, maybe of some lyrics or maybe uh, some melodies or some music, something they want off of that record in particular, and mm -hmm. they know exactly where to place the needle and get it. Ah. So they go in there, and they will introduce that little portion into their beat. Ah. So it samples that portion, and then it blends into it. And sampling 
is really a big thing in hip hop. It's always something that's been done. It's a tradition in hip hop. Well, if they knew where to put the if they knew where to put the needle down exactly, so that's analog. I mean, they're working from memory and from where it is on the physical record. If they put the needle down and they they sample that spot, how do they make it repeat in real time? They scratch, scratch and go back, scratch and go back. Ah, with their hands. Chicka chicka, slim shady. Wow. Like so that. you can make all new sounds. And then, of course, eventually all that became digitized, right? Correct. Do people still, are there still artists or DJs who use all kinds of analog as well? You know what? A lot of them are using more digital-based uh, DJ equipment nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll have your traditionalist uh, that really like using the old-school DJ setups. and. and can your ear and hear any difference? Not really. I mean, mm-hmm. the digital way is just as good nowadays. I mean, it really a lot of DJs uh, don't even have turntables these days. They they'll have everything on their CDs and it's pre-scratched and pre-made. Wow! 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 I've, I've, yeah, I've also heard that. Um, I've also and and. and um, yeah, well, anyway, so I was re- okay. So I'm reading some notes as I go, but. Um, <laughs> Yes. Okay. So, um, but can you tell us really quickly, just kind of in you know, hip hop one one, these wonderful fellows seem to have died early. They weren't mentioned in the movie, and you personally kind of have mourned them as well. Like um, two or three different guys have been sort of martyred in the cause, haven't they? Well, not necessarily that they weren't mentioned in the movie. For example, Tupac comes out of the movie in one scene. Oh. Uh, it is a, a brilliant. In fact, that scene got so much buzz. Um, they're, they're definitely tell, probably tell gonna... me this scene because I think let's see if I remember it at all. Well, I did tell us Tupac. Yeah, it's a scene where there are Dre's on Death Row Records already at that point, and Suge Knight's making a ruckus in another room, and they're just making a mess, and they're all having a good time, mm-hmm. and they're picking on some big tough guy who's laying on the floor in diapers, uh, and then uh, Dre oh, goes right, out of the studio right, to the right. room to like say, "Look, guys, I got Tupac in the next room, and you guys are you know making a mess, acting the fool. Stop it!" And then the big thing happens, and he goes back into the booth, and he talks to Tupac. And the guy who plays Tupac, his name is Mark Rose, and this guy looks identical. It looks like Tupac wow. spit him out. I mean, wow. he looks like a clone of Tupac. Well, uh, he doesn't I sound a whole, an awful lot like yeah. Tupac, but he looks a lot like Pac. In fact, they they're, um, they did a, a dub over. Actually, two actors ended up playing Tupac. One did the physical playing of Tupac, the you know mm-hmm. the visual, and then uh, an actor came in and dubbed over that guy's voice so he could sound just like Tupac. Because oh. remember, Tupac his voice is as, as important as the look. You know, his voice is uh, the, he's considered the voice of his generation in hip hop. So that voice is very important to get it right. And they had to use two actors to do it. They nailed it. And those two actors are now contracted, most likely, to do the Tupac biopic. Okay, so now uh, just for again, I, I I speak for I speak for an entire generation. I don't know this stuff. If if someone were to discover Tupac, what is his most what is his most wonderful song that you'd say start with such and such? Dear Mama. Okay, that's cool. That's easy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's a, a song that he wrote for his mother. Oh, that's nice. And you had one yeah. right off the top of your head. Um, yeah. That's yeah. actually my favorite rap song of all times. So. Oh, wow. When you, well, hear, when you hear it, you'll be like, oh, it's, I understand. It's yeah. a very deep song. Well, it's taken me, I'd say, about 30 years. No, well, yeah, 30 years. It's been since the 70s, 80s, 90s. 80s. 80, to get used to it <clears throat> to the point where it doesn't sound foreign to me because coming from the generation that brought serious rock and roll into the culture, 
I mean, the most craziest rock and roll we could dig up. I was literally born in the town that, that created the first rock and roll song. It was a white guy's, but it was called Rock Around the Clock. But it was the first mainstream rock and roll song, um, Bill Haley and the Comets. And then, you know, black people were doing jazzy dancing and stuff. And so rock and roll just became a fierce all over the world like a fire got, got started. And I know the same thing happened with rap. I know it because I just felt always felt. Oh, so rap, yeah. rap and hip hop is a global phenomenon. I mean, uh-huh. uh, members of like the Wu Tang Clan, which is a rap group. I know you're not too familiar with rap, but these, I've heard, it's a I've very heard famous of them. group here. These are, yeah. They, well, they're really famous. They've been around for about 20 years now, 20-some years. Uh, they've sold millions and millions of records worldwide. They're so famous. They can go anywhere in the world, and they're recognized easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're huge overseas. Like You can imagine with a name like Wu-Tang Clan. They go to Japan or China or any of these places. Uh, automatically, people know who they are because of the name. You know, They have a name. Well, I remember last week we were Asian talking. Asian martial arts movies. Right. And, and so last week we were talking about artists doing their own thing sometimes, coming out, being independent, um, and how you have a better chance. But w- one of the most depressing things about the movie, but brilliant, was the loss of money. Just money just going this way and going that way. And it, I guess there was so much that you could get a lot stolen from yourself. Um, and then you wake up one morning and you don't have a company anymore or something. But But... See, that's why you were sort of thinking of that probably when you were saying it. a lot of artists have a better chance if they can do their own thing nowadays right. on the Internet, perhaps. Yeah. But yeah. that was typical. I mean, you know, um, that whole world of coming up with an agent or a manager or somebody who's going to just take you under their wing and make it so that everything's okay. That's what most artists did. They, they signed with a company. They signed with, a, with an important agent etc. And that's artists of all stripes, including book people. And once that whole system is all shaken to its core now, uh, artists do have a lot of decisions to make. A lot of decisions. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, and well, it's funny because in the movie they portray uh, Jerry Heller like the devil and Right. In real well, life, he, he, did a great, he did a great job. Oh, I love Paul, Di- Paul uh, Giamatti. Is Paul Giamatti, yeah. Yeah, uh, but it, you know Jerry Heller really was that bad. I mean, like what he did to that group. I mean, he literally tore the group apart from inside, from the inside. Uh, but you know, a lot of a lot of it was because of his own personal greed, and a lot of it was also a, a misconception of the group, not knowing what the details of what they signed, because mm-hmm. he put so much weird language in their contracts when they signed it that mm-hmm. they didn't know what the hell they were signing. So when they of got course. royalties, they were getting like pennies. You know, and, and they're making you know millions of re- uh, sales, and yet they're all broke. The only one who right. was making money was Easy E because he was the label owner, so he was making all the money. And mm-hmm. even Easy E didn't know the contract that the the other guy signed because Jerry Heller took care of all that, mm-hmm. and right. he was getting royalties that he never should have gotten. He was getting royalties that belonged to the group and to Easy E. Mm-hmm. Like Jerry Heller really screwed everybody on that. And that of even Easy E, because he, he, he because if, if that's your, if that's your talent, yeah. What happened? I wonder where he is yeah, today. Is he still around? Oh, he's up. around. Uh, in fact, there was an interview they did with him not long ago that he said um, that he still to this day walks around with a gun because he's afraid for his life because he knows at any moment somebody can come and kill him because he's been threatened so many times uh, that he, he knows it could be at any moment somebody would just yeah. come and cap him. And uh, you know what? The guy, is, he did so much dirt that it wouldn't shock me if he ends up dead sometime. Oh. But he has good protection. He has lawyers and he has uh, bodyguards and he has guns, so he, I mean, he literally lives in hiding. He's in, he's in fear for his life. Yeah. I don't know if he'll be so much anymore now that Shook Knight's in prison for life and NWA is already, 
you know, they're they're done with. I mean, that's an old group. Uh, Dr. Dre is not trying to kill anybody. So, uh, you know, these well, people did Dr. are Dre have a, Is Dr. Dre not a gentle person? Did he have a violent era himself? Well, he never I, committed, as far as I know, he never committed murder or was associated with a killing or, or anything of that nature. But he did have a couple of episodes where he was violent towards women. Okay. And okay. one, a couple of things that were omitted from the movie, which a lot of people I were see. upset at, yeah. was a, an incident that took place with him and a, a journalist named Dee Barnes, mm-hmm. uh, where he, confront, he confronted her at a, at a party. It was mm-hmm. like a rap party for uh, one of their albums. And she was there, and he confronted her about an article that she wrote uh, where she was interviewing Ice Cube, who had just left the group, and he was taking shots at the group. Right. And she, in the article, <laughs> took his side against the group, and she was really nasty towards Dre and towards the group. So Dre, who was drunk that night, went up to her and confronted her about it and started talking to her. She acted really rudely. This is what everybody said who was there, that she acted rudely towards him, and she just told him to bug off, and then you know, not those words and meaner yeah. words. Yeah. And Dre got upset, and he slapped the living daylights out of her to the point that she went flying backwards like a rag doll, hit the wall, fell down. It says it looked like a toy when he when he hit her. He hit, that's how hard he hit her. Yeah, she probably uh, thought she was in a safe environment in that there were so probably, many people, yeah. people around he wouldn't do anything. Like um, he just lost it. He, supposedly they, yeah. everybody said he just lost it. Like they never saw him act like that before. He just went crazy because well, of the way she was talking um, to him. Beside Pot, what is Snoop known for? Because I think I saw pot. him come through the moon. No, no, Pot, just Pot. Snoop is a pothead. And God bless him. I mean, is that, I mean, but is he also a really good rapper, a, a well, you know, known for just, or is it just Pot? No, he's, an, no, actually Snoop is one of the greatest rappers probably who's ever grabbed the microphone. I mean, he's a, an amazing rapper, and he, uh, but yes, he's known for oh, Pot, yes. He's, ha- but, but because of the Pot, and I hope that, you know, we're in a, we're in a very uh, pivotal year. Everybody is saying that 2016, it's going to be pretty much legalized. Uh, de facto or de jure or whatever. Um, er, so many states are putting it up for legalization. You know, I mean, they're saying, "Geez, here's hoping." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in any event, um, once you learn how to use it properly, I believe that the people like Snoop and anybody else who's been open about their use in a legal state might be in a position to say, "Okay, now you now let's explore super creativity because these guys." are super creative and I'm seeing that all through the movie they're just puffing on joints the whole time and you said cocaine is also a big thing in the record industry uh, more yeah, more in the rock and roll side of it than in the hip hop uh-huh. hip hop is more about drinking and smoking weed is that uh, right but in the, in the rock and roll uh, industry yeah in rock and roll cocaine is rampant interesting uh, cocaine heroin I mean those are the drugs of choice. every genre every genre for some reason has artists to have the drug of choice the drug of it's choice just, and so yeah. you know eventually we might as a society learn those of the artiste community who want to try to do this kind of stuff you might learn how to mm-hmm. do it properly and you know for for example, I read someplace, just in, I can't even say it. I, I can't even say it because he's a very established actor, one of the best in the world. Uh, it just was posted someplace that he's a uh, heroin addict for 50 years. And supposedly, if you're a rich, smart white guy, you know how to manage that. So I'm not, I'm not condoning it, believe me. But I'm suggesting for grown-ups, uh, not for kids. Kids. Well, Nancy, kids. Why, did, why did you think that the United States went and put those poppy fields back in circulation? Because people like that, which you speak, they needed, but... they needed, they needed the heroin. That's yeah. the reason. Yeah. Where yeah. are the poppy fields put back in circulation in Afghanistan? In Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah. In fact, one of the stories that um, uh, I was working on um, before the story fell apart 
was the story of how um, the CIA actually helped Osama bin Laden put the poppy fields back in operation in Afghanistan and how a Russian general and a DEA special agent in charge were both after those fields because that opium was coming into this country. So it was, well, it, you it, know it was the whole laws, end of an era. It was 1993. Right. And you know the laws aren't going to change unless the people who are profiting from all this, uh, you know, from the drug trade, from the illegal drug trade, from, uh, those people, and I'm talking, I'm looking at you government people, those people who have made their whole black budget off of this stuff. That's they the CIA. Have, that was the right, CIA. They, right, yeah, the CIA, have, the Queen of England, you know, the, the monarch. Yeah. I mean, they, they were all profiting. And they the dumped it into the inner cities, and journalists have lost their lives trying to point this out. That's, that's all known now. But the fact is, it would seem to me that they have to come up with whole new money sources uh, before they can even allow it to be decriminalized. I mean, you know, there's been a... Uh, a media campaign forever. The media campaign is over. The media campaign says, "Let's make it. Let's make it legal." There's not a movie mm-hmm. or a TV you don't see where gentle people, decent people, suddenly smoke pot and then continue being decent and gentle. That's not an accident. That's in everything you look at. So, yeah. and the DEA right now is really struggling just to even keep its relevance. But I'm much more concerned about the the people who made all their fortunes on this stuff, not the drug lords, but the guys the drug lords dealt with. You know, they had yeah, to basically. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah. And so anyway, so so Lou was uh, Lou was skyping and said, "What's the drug of choice <laughs> for the book industry?" <laughs> and I laughed. I would say cigarettes and wine. Two buck chuck. <laughs> Two buck chuck. Two buck chuck. Yeah. He also wants to know, Nancy. Uh, Lou uh, skyping. He said, uh, "When is Bill and Nancy going to write a rap song based on Pierce Plowman?" Pierce Plowman. Oh my God. Let Bill tell you <laughs> who Piers Plowman is. Why not? <laughs> I don't know why Piers Plowman keeps coming up. Uh, you realize that it is 2015, and that dissertation, that was my dissertation, th- that is actually 40 years ago. That's how long ago that was. And when I started it, it was actually 45 years ago. It was 1968. So, no, I don't see any rap song on Piers Plowman, although at some point... But you know that was the same genre. I mean, that was rap back in the day. Well, it was. That was rap. That was 14th century alliterative poetry. And someday... And I I was not impressed when you started to beat the the guitar and and speak in this kind of cadence thing. I thought, uh uh-oh. That was Beowulf. Beowulf. It's a, he's a, he, he, I've got a nerd on my hands. I got a problem here. I can fix got this. Got a couple though. of them, Nancy. That's <laughs> someday if I can get good and drunk, I will actually do a rap to Pierce Plowman because that was the actually the original. We should do rap. that for a holiday show, like like Christmas or something. Yeah, we should. We should do the uh, the original English rap was Old English poetry. That was the original rap because what rap started out, it's funny, when you look at how rap started out, and I know we're coming up on our break and bringing in Ruben and Noe, but the way rap started out, it was this form of Germanic poetry, and I know this is going to sound like, hey, you're stealing my rap, but I'm not. It's this, it's this form of Germanic poetry. It was a tautology. It was a sentence that said, A is B. Right. So I am a street guy. This police are bad. F the police, things like that. It is a tautology. It is a statement of what is. 
that's how uh, and that form of poetry this is that this is that is this that form of poetry metaphorical poetry it was called gnomic verse and it Mm. existed in um old germanic and it was a, a standard form of verse and and that's what came into old english and so when you read old english poetry which is alliterative like rap it's it's internal rhyme and it's initial rhyme just like rap when you read that and someday i will um when you read that what you find is that it is a a, a statement it's basically saying tell it like it is that's really the essential statement tell it like it is you see that yeah, that is rap. You see that? Uh, and we are coming upon our first break, and we will be uh, bringing Yaban. Yeah, and we are going to be talking all UFOs tonight. This is the Mexican Roswell. This is one of the stories that if you this don't already Texas, know. No, this is the Texas Roswell. The Mexican Roswell. Ah. The Mexican Roswell was Nancy. It was Koyami, as Ruben and Noe will explain, because we were there in the Koyami Desert. But this is Colonel Willingham sighting. Okay, so this is the Del Rio, Texas. Del Rio, Texas incident. Right. Very cool. Right, and this is the one on the border. Uh, I thought the Mexican Roswell, I thought it was called the both because I thought it was on the Texas Mexican uh, border. well, Well, in the Koyami incident. American soldiers, and Ruben can explain this. This was one of our early episodes of UFO Hunters, so Ruben and I and Noe may reminisce about being held at gunpoint by these teenage okay, hold that. soldiers. Hold that. 50-caliber guns aimed at us, and hold Ruben that. always smiles. This is the one day he never <laughs> smiled. Hold that Take thought. Smile <laughs> and turn it upside down. That was Ruben Uriarte. Oh. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so we are your co-hosts, Bill. That's me and Nancy Burns on Future Theater Live on the D- on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. Coming back after this break with our guests Ruben Uriarte and Noe Torres. So stick with us. We'll be back on the other side. James Swagger, host of Capricorn Radio. I'm also an author, engineer, and researcher. Capricorn Radio covers alternative history, alternative science, philosophy, and truth-oriented discussions. We are proud to be on the Dark Matter Radio Network live at 8 p.m. Saturdays, Eastern Standard Time. You can catch extra info on darkmatterradio.net, jameswagger.com for yours truly, CapricornMembers.com for the archives. Don't forget, truth is not democratic. Truth is truth. team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology preventative maintenance and networking support hardware and custom built computers let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly monthly or annual rates to fit anyone's budget call key information solutions now 
954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction. Are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, ancient mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Here's a riddle for you. What do the California gold rush of the 1850s, secret societies, coded messages, mysterious 19th century flying machines, and an early 20th century outside artist named Charles A.A. Delshaw all have in common? The Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw and Pete Navarro. Go to www.secretsofdelshaw.com to learn more. And we are back on Future Theater with our guests, Ruben Uriarte and Noe Torres on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio on Future Theater. Thank you for joining us, guys, um, on this Labor Day. I know that you were celebrating Labor Day out there in California, and so thanks for joining us. Where it's been hot. It's been hot, I hear. (laughs) Hi, guys. Well, yeah, I'm here in California, and it's still daylight over here, by the way. And I know Noe's been uh, dealing with the heat down in Texas. How hot, well, Noe, has it been? Well, I was reading the other day that uh, more than three days of 90-degree-plus weather equals a heat wave. Well, we've been at close to 100 for wow. a couple of months at least. So I guess okay. we're, we're in much more than a heat wave, whatever is <laughs> hey. above that. Noe, uh, uh, hell called. They want their heat back. Yeah, I, I think they're distributing it liberally to us here in South Texas. I think so, too. Jesus. Yeah. Well, no rain either? We have surprisingly had a few days of cool weather and rain, uh, but it's not frequently enough. Mm-hmm. We're still well, waiting for El Nino to kick in, kick in there, Nancy. It should kick in soon. That's that's what's happening on the West Coast. So um, let's just start out with uh, Colonel Willingham. Uh, when did he die? He died a couple of weeks ago, right? He actually died, uh, Bill, on August 27th. Um, so this is very recent, just a little mm-hmm. over a week ago on a Thursday. He was 89 years old. And it was just a few days after his birthday. Uh, his birthday was August 15th. 
and he was at a veteran's home in Oklahoma, Lawton, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, where he had been since he suffered a series of major strokes mm. um, beginning about six months ago. And uh, we stayed in touch with his caretaker. Uh, he was no longer able to communicate uh, verbally at all mm -hmm. after he had the last series of strokes. Mm -hmm. So for about six months, he was uh, at the Veterans Center, and he was uh, not able to communicate, and he was being fed intravenously. And um, he did finally uh, pass away. A little over a week ago, Bill. Mm -hmm. we're, we're very sorry to say. Yeah. Well, uh, why don't the two of you figure out how you're going to do this, but tell us the story of the Del Rio incident and Colonel Willingham's, um, how, what he did, what he saw, and, and how he actually investigated this, didn't he? I mean, well, I'll just let you tell the story because it is an untold, it's in your book, obviously, um, about the Del Rio incident, which we should link to, but um, tell us the story because very few people in the UFO community know about it. I mean, you've been at UFO conferences and you've told the story, but why don't you tell it again for everybody? Okay, um, I'm going to start start off and Ruben can, can um, put in his comments along the way. Um, it, it's a fascinating case, but I'm going to say right off the top that the reason this case has not received more attention, in my opinion, is because it's essentially a single witness case. Uh, Colonel Willingham, in the opinion of Reuben and myself and other people who have looked at this case, um, is a very strong witness, a very good witness. He was in the military at the time. We have documentation about his military service. Uh, we have uh, people who knew him when he was in the military. Um, so, but, but still, despite our best efforts, since we first interviewed him in person in 2008, uh, despite our best efforts, we have not been able to come up with another uh, first-hand witness to what happened. And Ruben, uh, you had a comment? Yes. Uh, uh, these are one of these cases, as you know, Bill, um, it takes years sometimes for a case to unfold. And as you know, well, with the Roswell case, although it happened in 1947, we really didn't really know much more about it until uh, when we had other uh, investigators uh, looking into the case. Uh, when we had uh, Stanton Freeman, we interviewed uh, Mr. Jesse Marcel. Mr. Jesse Marcel. It took back 30 in years. It took, it, it, took. it took 30 years before, and it only. Really exactly, to and, and be, yes, because and Jesse this is Marcel a situation that we're in of silence, right? I mean, that was the issue. Yes. It was, it was, it, it was this interview. Stanton was talking about the case. I think it was on a radio station in Louis. This is now part of UFO lore. It's funny UFO history. Stanton was on a radio station. Um, I think it was in Louisiana, and the DJ or the um, interviewer said to Stanton, you know, there's this guy who's talking about this case. He said he was there, and that was Jesse Marcel, the key witness in that case. And that's, that's an interesting point, too, Bill and Ruben, because we had an, an eerily similar experience when we first heard about Willingham because, uh, uh, you know, our paths intersected, uh, Ruben and myself and you, when we did the uh, UFO Hunters episode on the crash retrieval 
near Coyama, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were doing the research for our book prior to that, uh, we kept hearing a case about another crash retrieval that had occurred much earlier. Uh, the Coyama case was 1974, and this one was in the 50s, We, Ruben and I were hearing mm-hmm. uh, from various UFO researchers, including Bruce Maccabee, uh, who was telling us that there was an actual living witness who was a, a fighter jet pilot in the 50s, and uh, he had chased a UFO across Texas. He was uh, engaged in a Cold War um, simulated bomb run where the, uh, the U.S. bombers were, um, were headed up the, uh, they were headed across Texas and then up the West Coast. Uh, toward Washington State uh, to simulate a um, a uh, a bombing run on the Soviet Union. Yeah, but uh, we should we should point out that it was was going to be a nuclear payload. So that's an important part of it, I think. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was this was a, in preparation for um, delivering a nuclear payload to to the Soviets. Uh, this was 1955, and Colonel Willingham was in an F-86 fighter jet. Um, that was escorting the the B-47 bomber that was carrying the payload. And it just so happened they had taken off from uh, Carswell Air Force Base near Fort Worth and were headed down across West Texas and were in the area over San Angelo, Texas, when this incident occurred. Uh, Colonel Willingham, we sat in his living room across the, the table from him, and he told us that there was a lot of chatter on the military radio about an incoming bogey uh, moving very fast. It had been picked up around the uh, border of Canada, uh, the Canadian border with Washington State, and was headed down their way, uh, according to what he told us. And just a short time later, uh, since it was going at over 2,000 miles per hour, um, actually closer to 2,500 miles per hour, it was upon them in a very short uh, span of time. He described it as a huge bright light in the sky. It was almost like seeing a star, uh, uh, a big star, but in, in the daytime. Uh, right. It was an orb-shaped object, and it crossed their formation in full view of four, um, four fighter jets and the B-47 that they were escorting. Uh, just crossed right in front of them, and uh, Colonel Willingham was was piloting the lead jet, an F-86, and he saw the object suddenly make a 90-degree angle turn and head on a more southerly course. Um, so that's how the whole episode began, and as it turned out and as the story developed, and we'll talk more about it, he uh, he got permission to turn in his F-86 and come back in a smaller plane and go over to where the object appeared to have uh, crash-landed uh, right along the Texas-Mexico border. And that's where this, the story began to get very, very interesting. And Ruben and I uh, ended up uh, writing uh, an entire book about this one case. Well, tell us what happened after Willingham came back. To the board. Well, uh, wait, before we move on, um, you said that Willingham is the only eyewitness to this story, but what about the other people who saw yeah. well, the orb? To, yeah, to qualify, I, I, he was the, the only eyewitness who has spoken. Yeah. Who has spoken. Oh. 
Everybody and, went through a military debriefing after the mission, and they were told that they were not to reveal what had happened down by the border, is the term that was used. And, um, and to our knowledge, nobody uh, other than Willingham ever spoke up, and uh, a lot of them, of course, now have died or um, we've lost track of where they've gone. So it's... This, this this involves. Uh, just wanted to jump into. Um, um, there's a couple of uh, groups uh, in the debriefing. One was the radar operators. These were the guys that right. were tracking the object, um, and they they were also debriefed. They were told not to say anything. Also, they included the uh, the B forty seven bomber crew. They were also briefed, and they were told not to say anything, as well as all the F eighty six. Fighter pilots. That were and how do you know that they were told not to say anything? Have you spoken uh, to any of them, or actually, actually, this leads into the other situation. The other issue. Uh, there was um, already a lead investigator that was involved in this case. His name is Mr. Todd Zeckel, and uh, probably Bill. You probably may have heard of him before. Um, Todd Zeckel. He was with NICAP, but he was also the founder of cause which was citizens against you that's right yep and he was also a very interesting uh, he had he had a title uh he was a research director for ground ground watch zero but what also makes it really interesting was that he was also former nsa uh he worked for the national security agency back then but todd was very protective of this case which is Probably why we have again going back to the original question why we didn't know much about this case was that um, Todd's intent was to write a book about this case, and in oh, fact he told me ahead. if I could interrupt just for a minute, we had about a year's worth of communication with him, Bill, uh, with Todd Zeckel before he passed away, and uh, our book was published after after he died. Um, but during that year that he and I communicated very regularly, uh, he, he told me a lot of, of uh, the inside story of how the Willingham case first developed and his interest in it. And the interesting thing about it was when Ruben and I were going to Archer City, Texas, where Willingham lived um, and spent most of his life, we were interviewing him and also interviewing him over the phone because we think of questions that we didn't we hadn't asked him when right. we were there with him. Uh, he he kept telling us, you know, because we kept asking him for more documents, everything that he had about his military service at the time, his flight records, and so forth. We got some of the some of that from him, but he kept telling us that Todd Zeckel had taken most of the primary documentation that he had about this, including wow. the names of some of the other airmen and so forth. Because um, it was Mr. Zeckel's intent to publish a book. In fact, I believe he told me that he had he had it mostly finished, and that was shortly before his death. Mm-hmm. Now, Ruben and I made an effort to obtain or, or to see if we could obtain uh, Mr. Zeckel's papers and things after his death, but the family had other plans, so. We were unfortunately never able to recover any of Willingham's. Um, well, do you materials. know what the family did with the stuff? 
I really don't know. Yeah. Uh, there was a um, a MUFON member from Michigan um, who was trying to help us with that, but we, we never were able to get to the bottom of that. What about Michael Swords? From... Uh, no. Uh, in what way for to contact him to help us out with uh, getting some I, directions? When we interviewed Michael Swords, uh, one of the things that Michael Swords was most proud of was he had files that, I mean, a whole room full of files on these various cases. And I know wow. that Michael Swords had been involved with NICAP, and I know wow. that Michael Swords, uh, Professor Swords, had been involved with, I want to say he was tangentially involved with ground saucer watch and probably cause so uh, michael swords may well be um an untapped source for this oh good that, that sounds good uh, yeah well one of the things about this case is that uh, it's still unfolding obviously there's more information to gather and we've obtained a number of documents almost synchronistically we were able to obtain a uh, copy of a of a videotape from a friend of mine, actually. He was in the Air Force back then. He was a captain. And he happened to have a tape. It was a documentary uh, from a Japanese... Uh, it was a Japanese documentary on Willingham and the UFO phenomenon here, here in the United States back in 1978. So we were really fortunate to have, uh, have the tape uh, translated from Japanese mm -hmm. into English, and we were able to get some interesting information based on the interview that uh, Willingham had conducted. And also recently, um, we've come across some other additional files, um, the NICAP uh, affidavit that uh, that was conducted by Todd Zeckel with uh, mm -hmm. Willingham. And then we also found out, now I've also had acquired some records from some friends of mine that have passed away. They were researchers, and we found some additional information about uh, Willingham and an actual tape interview. I, I would love to get a copy of the tape for, for both Noe and I to, to really listen to it, but have a transcription of, of the actual uh, interview back, dated back in 1978 from Zeckel. And in here, he, he does point out some names um, that we can get, uh, get into as, as the story develops, but it, it's Still, uh, it's still some detective work that we have to do. Uh, I but, wanted to add, if I could, Ruben, that uh, ahead, to put this in historical context, Bill, um, this story was kind of bubbling up to the surface in the mid to late 70s, and there were actually a number of researchers who believed that this was going to be the preeminent UFO mm. crash retrieval story. Uh, as soon as Zeckel put it out in its entirety, he had he had all this documentation from Willingham. He had uh, firsthand he had names of witnesses. And he mm. had um, Willingham's testimony, but um, w uh, Todd Zeckel himself told me that there was another camp in ufology at that time that was promoting Roswell as the preeminent event. Uh, UFO crash retrieval event that 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 would get the whole nation's attention on the crash retrieval subject, and um, he, now Zeckel explained to me that there were some dirty tricks that were conducted against him, and uh, the end result was <laughs> that the case that came forward in the end in 1980 with um, with the first book published about it 
um, the Roswell incident, Charles Berlitz, right, which Stanton Friedman did the research for. Sure. Uh, it ended up being, according to Mr. Zeckel, uh, it was full of lies and contradictions that were totally untrue. Whereas he, to mm. the very end, and I, and you know, I, I talked to him clo- till close to the mm-hmm. end of his life. Mr. Zeckel felt that uh, that the Willingham case had the solid information that should have made it. Uh, the more even more important than Roswell. Uh, well, there's also a a true piece of debris. But I wanted to ask right. you, what did what did Willingham think of Zeckel? Did they like each other? Oh yeah, they loved each other. In fact, every time that uh, we interviewed uh, Colonel Willingham, he would tell us, "Now you you guys uh, get get in touch with Zeckel." I told him, I, "I am in touch with him." He said, "Now ask him to give you all the documents um, that that he took from me about this case." Of course, when I asked Mr. Zeckel mm. about that, he, he was not forthcoming with them. Mm. And he said he had a book in progress and nearly completed and that he was unable to support the publication mm-hmm. of our book. Wow. What, what, uh, what did Todd Zeckel die from? He had a form of cancer. I, I don't know exactly. But he had also suffered a stroke and was, was wheelchair-bound. And what year did he had, Multiple problems, health problems. What, what year did he die? I believe it was either, I, I believe it was 2009, uh, thereabouts. 2009. Do, you know how, do you know how old he was when he died? I can look that up. and. Uh, uh, I'm curious about a couple of things. I mean, um, obviously, he died of um, natural causes, but sometimes when you have multiple causes of death or multiple causes of um, a fatal disease, multiple strokes, cancer, sometimes those are the kinds of things that if you were going to be naturalized death, so to speak, he was NSA. Yes. He was, he, he was putting his, himself in places um, and talking about something publicly that he shouldn't have been talking about. Okay. Yeah, I see it here, Bill. Uh, just uh, sorry to interrupt your thought there, but he died at age sixty-three, which is relatively young. And he died in in November two thousand six. So it was right. earlier than I thought. Yeah. So I mean, here he is. It's two thousand and six. He's not. It, it, he he's sixty-three years old. He's really dying very early compared to how people. What age people died at in 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 uh, after the year two thousand? Well, to so, piggyback on that idea, even though Colonel Willingham was eighty nine when he died, what Ruben and I were talking about earlier today was, you know, he had a series of what he called mini strokes that started happening to him shortly after his UFO encounter. Right. For for a long span of time, he was having these. Many many strokes he called them, and and I be, uh, Ruben and I became the holders of all of his documents, medical mm. histories, and so forth. Mm-hmm. His caretaker gave to us because the family expressed no interest. Uh, Colonel Willingham's family expressed no interest mm. in in having those documents after his death. So we mm. we uh, we've got a huge trunk load yeah. of documents, <laughs> including all of his medical. Well, well, let's go back to when he, after he sees the orb, he asks for and gets a small plane to go back and investigate. 
Yeah, what happened is he broke off from the formation. He asked permission of his captain, of his, uh, the uh, commander uh, in charge of the squadron to break off and follow uh, the object that they had seen. So he was the only one of the fighter pilots that was told to go and get right. chase. So he followed the contrail down to around Del Rio, Texas, where he observed that the object seemed to be in distress and, and no longer maintaining level flight and descending at a rapid rate. And he said he saw an impact point um, just south of Langtree, Texas, which is a tiny little community near Del Rio, Texas, right on the, the border with Mexico. Uh, it was at that point that he said he uh, he got down fairly low in his F-86 and he surveyed the area. He saw very clearly a disc, silver disc-shaped object impacted on uh, on the ground up against a, a mound of dirt, a small hill it looked like. Uh, so it was at that point that he uh, he radioed in. He rejoined his formation and radioed in asking permission to return to base. He returned to Carswell Air Force Base near Fort Worth, and he turned in his F-86. He went to another nearby uh, airport, which was actually uh, uh, where his um, he was very involved in CAP, the Civil Air Patrol. Mm -hmm. So he went over to the Civil Air Patrol airport nearby, and he picked up a small um, uh, a small propeller plane. Veronica. Um, it was an Aronica, that's right. Mm -hmm. And he flew it down with with a favorable tailwind, uh, made good time down to the Del Rio area, and he landed that thing right alongside the crashed UFO. By the time he got there, there was a huge presence of Mexican military uh, personnel at the site, uh, and they were waving him off and trying to get him to get out of the area. And he's all by himself. Uh, well, he, no, he took yeah, he Jack took Perkins. A, Jack Go Perkins with him, an engineer who unfortunately died uh, prior to Ruin and I starting the research for the book. But Jack per Perkins, uh, an electrical engineer, um, was with him um, on on the flight, and he went yeah. down there, and he and Jack Perkins got out of the plane and attempted to approach the crashed UFO, but they were held back by the soldiers, the Mexican soldiers, and the soldiers told them that they had been um, that they had been instructed to secure the crash site until the U.S. Air Force arrived. Mm, that makes it wow. interesting. And, um, also, something that we learned in that uh, that particular incident there Nancy was the fact that when uh, Williams Willingham had arrived um, in the Japanese documentary mind you I mean the whole Japanese <laughs> nation was seeing mm -hmm. this documentary right. in 1978 whereas here in the United States we hardly knew anything about this case well in, in the transcript that we had assistance in it mentioned that there were two um, intelligence officers, two American intelligence officers that were dressed in plain clothes, they were told, they oh. told Willingham to leave. And that, that was in, in the uh, the transcript there. They told him that he had to leave. And and the fact that he says that they're, they were American was the fact that they were speaking very clearly English, and then they were talking Spanish, giving directions to the military contingent that was but there. But they were so in plain clothes. Yes, it's, it's, that's, that's very interesting. But then again, you know, uh, 
in, in uh, the in the work that uh, that both Noe and I have been conducting, it's it's not uh, common where you have an American advisor there at a at a incident like this. And so, if I recall, I remember in our UFO hunters, Bill, uh, when we went to the uh, that small town, and we found that uh, Sedena. Remember, right? Uh, I Sedena? certainly remember Sedena. Yep. Yeah, and how that all works is that they uh, there's a whole uh, connection there. It goes directly into uh, uh, connecting with the CIA agency, which is the largest agency. is based out of uh, in in Latin America. It's based out of Mexico City. Mexico City. That's right. Right, and there's a reason for that too. Um, in in the um, going all the way back to uh, the 1940s and the 1950s. The CIA was laundering money from Southeast Asia drug traffickers. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. It's the Mexico City connection. The CIA was laundering money from drug traffickers in Southeast Asia in the Golden Triangle through banks in Mexico City back into the United States. And it was in Mexico City where um, this strapping six-foot former army general by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald, shows up at the Soviet embassy. And that was one of the things that really bothered um, Phil Corso, who was investigating this, saying, why are there two Lee Harvey Oswalds, and why was one Lee Harvey Oswald at the Mexican embassy, at the United States embassy in Mexico City, um, because he had his, because that was the description of him in his passport, while the other Lee Harvey Oswald was probably five foot four, five foot five in Texas. So the CIA connection to Mexico City is phenomenally strong. Now that's interesting, Bill, because one of the things that puzzled Ruben and me when we were visiting with the colonel in Archer City was he mentioned that one of the uh, one of the men who was at the scene when he when he uh, landed his small plane was a gentleman that he remem- whose name he only remembered as Martinez. Martinez. Yeah. Ah. Now, he spoke, now, he spoke English, all right? Mm-hmm. And most of the communication that he and Jack Perkins got at the scene was from this gentleman named Martinez. Well, then it turned out, Willingham told us, that he saw him some months later in Mexico City uh, within the context of another UFO investigation. Uh, they were talking about another UFO investigation, and um, Colonel Willingham told Reuben and me that he was trying to to find out more about the bodies that had been found at the crash site near Del Rio, but Martinez wouldn't tell him any any more information, so he kind of clammed up at that point. But it's interesting that. He ran into this gentleman named Martinez who was at the crash site in Del Rio several months later in Mexico City when um, Willingham was there working on another assignment and the two bumped into each other. So uh, one one has to believe he he must have been CIA. Well, a potential potential source for you then um, who might have known Martinez was um, a CIA operative known uh, by the name of uh, Felix Rodriguez. 
Felix Rodriguez was based on a JM wave and was instrumental in the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba, uh-huh. but he was a CIA operative. I spoke to him personally. In fact, I had dinner with him. And, um, Mar- uh, and, and Rodriguez, wa- he'd written a book. Uh, it was about how he led a unit, uh, a CIA unit, um, tracking Che Guevara, found him, and he's the guy who delivered the news to Che Guevara that I think it was the Venezuelans had ordered his execution. So um, I will bet you that Felix Rodriguez knew of this person, Martinez, uh, because there was a very strong Mexico City connection between the Cuban um, uh, activists and um, the CIA connection in Mexico City. We'll definitely follow up on that. Yeah. Another interesting angle that happened here was, um, you know, a lot of people ask us, and we asked Colonel Willingham, you know, that's a very remote area of Mexico where this crash occurred. And yet he says that when he landed the small plane right alongside the crash site, there was quite a number of soldiers, maybe as, as maybe 50, 70 soldiers, Mexican soldiers and other personnel, some of them in plain clothes. Where the heck did they come from and how did they get to the crash site so quickly? You know, that's, that's a very interesting well, question. Uh, but a question that keeps troubling me is how did this man, Willingham, take it upon himself to say to the U.S. Uh, military he's part of, I'm just going to go check this out. I'll take a pal with me. Doesn't that sound odd to you? That well, because it, was, whenever there's something yeah. like this, they keep everybody away. They've already kept the radar people from talking and stuff. So how could he get himself into a plane and back there? I need to clarify that he went off off duty oh. uh, before before he got in the CAP plane, not a military plane, and went oh. down there and went down there on his own time. On his own time. Now and he what, initially. Okay, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and just just to make a full circle, he also talked, and he lived his life, I guess, talking about this. Um, what was his reason for breaking his military silence? He uh, he never actually talked about it. Um, well, he first the first mention of it that we could find in the UFO literature. Well, not in the UFO literature. It was actually a newspaper in Pennsylvania. When he was he was in, uh, in charge of a uh, civil air patrol squadron search and rescue squadron in Pennsylvania in the 1960s, late 60s, there was a newspaper reporter who did an article about um, CAP pilots encountering UFOs, and it happened that he was interviewed for that piece, and he said. Well, something I saw something down on the Texas-Mexico border uh, back in the 50s. He just makes kind of an, a comment that was totally unrelated to the story that they were doing, or not really relevant, but they included it in the article, and we've seen the article. What and paper? So that, um, I have it in my notes somewhere, but uh, it was a, uh, a weekly... Um, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. So and that's right near, ha- right. That's right near Harrisburg, right? It, right. It, and it so, also. Go I'm ahead, sorry. No, go yeah. ahead. Okay. No. So I was just going to say that that that's the first time that he. It was just a brief mention, and then there's essentially nothing until 
Todd Zeckel becomes involved in the mid to late 70s and finally persuades Colonel Willingham to file an affidavit with NICAP in 1978, uh, latter part of 77, early 78. And then subsequent to that, uh, Zeckel arranges with a visiting television crew from Japan to film this documentary about his experience, which was shown on nationwide television in Japan. Um, so it all happened very you, quick, quickly. Yeah, how did you find the Japanese um, documentary? It was that through was, luck. One of my friends was, yeah. uh, happened to have a copy of it. And it was, yeah. I, again, it was, a lot of this was a synchronistically. Where, I have to where, say that Ruben, you guys, I don't know if you know this about Ruben, but he's got a massive <laughs> archives going back to the 50s, uh, all kinds of material, print and video. He has dug some stuff out of there that, that mm -hmm. you guys wouldn't believe. For well, example, Ruben, how, how are you amassing it? Are people knowing that you collect and are contacting you, which they no, can uh, through, the, through the show? Primary, primary. Primarily, these are archives that were given to me as a result of my friends passing away, and I have oh. uh, their collections of materials, um, well, three or four. Um, uh, and then, so through sorting out the boxes in that that I've had, I said, oh, my God, that's every time I say, every time I, I go to a box, I say, oh, my God. <laughs> so I have the oh, my God files. Wow. Well, wow. if you ever wanted to put these up on... Um, Roku on the Roku box, we have a channel with Olaf Phillips, who you probably know. Olaf, oh, Olaf Phillips, yes. yes. Well, he's got the Anomalies channel on the Roku box, and that's partly a channel that we helped set up with him, um, actually through UFO Magazine. So, oh. um, and and Filament Books and and Future Theater. So, if you ever wanted to make to preserve this in a way that people could access it from Roku, the Anomalies channel is free. Um, Olaf could help you put that stuff up. Great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, Bill, that's, that's a great idea. And, and, you know, I've been thinking of uh, how best we can preserve the materials that we got on the Willingham case, because as I mentioned, we have a trunk load of, of documents. Uh, and some of them are starting to deteriorate. You know, there's just paper, uh, mm -hmm. typewritten well, on paper. So, Maybe, well, they need to be uh, photographed. Uh, they need to be photographed and, yes. and scanned and things like that, and then digitized so that they could be put up on a cloud server somewhere, so everybody could access those things. I think that's exactly right. So we'll talk to you off the air, yes, and, please, and maybe please, you can please. point us in the right direction on that. Okay, so let's get back to so Willingham and Perkins are now have landed their plane. And yes. they're looking at this um, um, group, this um, of Mexican soldiers and Martinez, and from the CIA or uh, t these two CIA guys. What happens next? Well, what, uh, this is very interesting. Um, he kept talking to them and and trying to get information. They were very tight-lipped. The only thing they would say is that there was going to be a um, a group that one of the Mexican soldiers termed the, the U.S. Air Force, uh, but we don't know exactly what the group was composed of, but that the group would be arriving shortly to take the wreckage away. And he said as he angled himself right up uh, within just a few feet of the main compartment, because the object had broken up into uh, essentially two, two large pieces, the, what, we would call, what we would call the... Um, the section where the crew 
is and then the the back part um, or the rest of it and he he what what he thought was a crew compartment he saw that there was a breach in the hull and just for he just caught a glimpse he said it was just a second and he saw um, two ET bodies um, through that uh, break in the hull um, very skinny uh, very short uh, about three to three and a half feet tall and they were both obviously he thought that they were uh, dead uh, mm. there was no sign of life whatsoever uh, we asked him if there were any signs of blood like blood splatter anywhere within the cabinet and his response was first of all he only caught a glimpse of it before he was shoved back by these armed guards uh, but he saw no evidence of blood and uh, did they have uh, larger heads in proportion to their bodies? Yes. Did they have uh, the large eye sockets? Yes. Um, were they wearing suits? They were wearing silvery, silvery, uh, tight-fitting suits. He, um, he said that their arms were, were like broomsticks. That extremely thin. thin, yeah. yeah. And he so said he, were, to this day, he, he told us he doesn't know what, what to make of that, how to process that in his mind, but he he is certain that they were not human beings or any species known to us on this planet. Could he see their faces? He just it, described them as pale, uh, pale and larger than the bodies, yeah. and obviously they were dead. There, there were some uh, depictions of, of drawings in that documentary it showed some AT, AT bodies. And one thing about working with the colonel was um, it, it was uh, – it took, it took a while. Uh, once, once we get some general information from him and because we had to deal with his memory. And right. then um, other times he was really sharp as a whip. And other times that uh, when we talked to him, um, it, it, he would be a little vague. So it just depended on what – the nature of his health was, and so right. there are a lot of times okay. that he would just go right in. Go ahead. Well, um, did he co uh, participate with the Japanese documentary? Yes. Well, yes. It, he, yes, it was Todd Zeckel and uh, and Colonel Willingham. Okay, so uh, that's no surprise. Yeah, they were both interviewed on camera in the documentary. Uh, Todd Zeckel arranged it. He was contacted, um, I don't know how initially, I, I never asked him about it, but uh, the request came in from this, the Japanese at that time, and I'm sure it continues to today, but at that time they were extremely interested in all things related to UFOs. They're fascinated by some, UFOs. They're absolutely yeah. fascinated. Right. Every we time have I've to been, take a break. I was just really? At 11.15? 11, at 11 Yes, that's that's the clear yeah, message I am getting. And so okay. I thought, while Bill is talking, since he's used to me, I will just kind of... Because Bill never <laughs> loses his train of thought. So we'll Okay, so that. what we'll do is we'll take a break. We'll come back with um, Ruben and Noe, because I have a whole bunch of questions about this. And one thing that's fascinating me, and you guys can think about this during the break, is why the UFOs were so fascinated by the B-47s because you reminded yeah. me of the RB-47 incident, which took much the same route as this squadron going um, over the Rio Grande River um, or basically over the Mexican border, this time from Louisiana 
toward the northwest. So think about the RB47 case in connection with the B47 case over Del Rio. We are Bill and Nancy Burns with our guests, Noe Torres and Ruben Uriarte. We are on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we are back after this short break. My name is Howard Hughes, and I'm in London, and I've been proud to bear this name all my life. Over here in the UK, I'm known as a broadcast journalist. I've been involved in some of the big stories of our time. The fall of the Berlin Wall. The death of Princess Diana. I told London about that. And on the first and second anniversaries of 9-11, I was there at Ground Zero, speaking to the people who were directly involved and those experiences I will never forget. So news is my thing. But my great love is my show, the one that I produce, The Unexplained. Over the years on this show, I've spoken to people like the late Al Bielik from the Philadelphia Experiment, Edgar Mitchell, the amazing Apollo astronaut, Dr. Stephen Greer, David Icke, and Uri Geller. People like Richard C. Hoagland have become personal friends over the years. I met him in London. So you can see that these sort of topics are what I like to discuss. Please join me on my show from London. The Unexplained, Monday nights on the Dark Matter Network. The UFO phenomenon, either we like it or not, is already very much part of our reality. I've been on panels with uh, military people who, you know, claim that they've seen the aliens buzzing our missile silos. They have very large eyes, and, you know, I found their stare extremely difficult to bear. This is Martin Willis, the host of Podcast UFO, and we are here on the Dark Matter Radio Network every Wednesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is my commitment to bring you an entertaining weekly show that takes a hard look at the UFO phenomena. Are they extraterrestrial? Well, are they interdimensional? Are they time travelers or something we have not even thought of yet? We explore these questions with interesting guests and witnesses from all around the globe. In addition, we bring you weekly UFO news with Open Minds TV, Alejandro Rojas. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your eyes to the sky. are back on Future Theater Live with our guests Ruben Uriarte and Noe Torres and we are talking about the Del Rio incident but we're going to fan out to other incidents as well. This is the this is the um, underreported but very fascinating incident of a UFO crash right near the Texas-Mexico border in Del Rio, Texas and the involvement of our own CIA, Air Force personnel and a unit from the Mexican military. So, um, guys, uh, thanks for Plus, we have, we have a caller. Okay, caller, go ahead. Hello, caller. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on. I was listening to your show, and I heard you mentioning the CIA and some of their illicit dealings. And I just wanted to convey a quick message about something that they did during Vietnam and... Uh, I'm former military intelligence, and I live in Los Angeles, and I know a lot of former military intelligence people that live there also. And one of them is a friend of mine who edited a book 
that is only available through the Freedom of Information Act in the Library of Congress, and that book is called The Six-Toed Dragon, T-O-E-D. And it was okay. written firsthand. It's written firsthand by a living Air America pilot who, during Vietnam, flew for Air America and watched as the CIA sold drugs, weapons, people, and laundered money for all sides of the war and even wow. uh, killed a lot of people. And not only did they drop Agent Orange, but they mm-hmm. dropped other colors of an agent, too, that's also in that report. So people mm-hmm. who are dying from Agent Orange poisoning also have mm-hmm. other poisons, too. And let me just say one more thing before I let you guys get back to the UFO story. The United States is a corporation, and it's posing as a government. Yes, so you can so. do every, we can all do ourselves a favor. If we change our words, we change our life. I think we should mm-hmm. start referring to the United States as a corporation. They're a Chapter 11 bankrupt corporation posing as a government, and the word government literally translates to mind control or control mm-hmm. mind. Well, so wait, 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 wait before, be, wait, before you go, uh, who is the author of The Six-Toed Dragon? Um, I only know the editor's name, and his name is Joseph Cooper, and he's former, also former military intelligence. And what year, did he write the, what year did he write this, approximately the 70s? Uh, no, this book came out about probably two years ago, because I uh, read the whole thing when I was living in downtown Los Angeles about a year ago, and... Uh, he had just finished editing and published it about a year before, and he did. He let me read a copy of it, and I read it in about two days, and it's really interesting. How and evil it's and wicked. Yeah, and well, is it would, and is it out on the internet? I mean, can people find it sort of? No, by, you can you can only order it through the Freedom of, of Information Act through the Library of Congress, but wow. it's called the Six Six Toed Dragon. Dragon T O E D, like the toes on your foot. Right. Two. Oh, okay, so before you go, one thing that might interest you also is when I was writing the book uh, The Riverman eons ago, the person uh-huh. I was writing it with was military police in Vietnam. He'd been a former sheriff's officer. And okay. one day his uh, CO calls him into the office and says, are you planning to make a career out of the Army? And he says, yes. And the commanding officer says, well, no, you're not, because you're going to be on a case, and this is the case you were talking about that came up in that book. It was the black market and drugs and United States intelligence involvement in the black mm-hmm. market in selling weapons and drugs and prostitution in Vietnam during the war. And this guy who became a, a, a very famous detective, I'm not going to mention his name, but everybody here probably knows it told me that as a result of what he had to do in that investigation, even though he was a cop, his gun never left his holster. Mm. Well, that's... You can figure that out, right? Yeah, of course. There's so much corruption going on at all levels. You know, I look at police officers also, and you think about it like this. A police officer, when he writes a citation, he puts a name on that citation, Sergeant Smith, let's say. Well, that name, Sergeant Smith, is not registered with the Secretary of State to conduct any kind of business in commerce. And and he is writing a contract because he forces you at gunpoint and under the threat of arrest, which is duress, to sign this fraudulent contract. You could actually file charges of commercial fraud against the individual writing the citation because he won't show you an ID. If you ask him for his name, he'll just point to his badge and say, oh, don't you see it right there? So if you print under duress 
in the signature block, that makes it an unenforceable contract in the court of law. Good point. Okay, thank you, caller, very much. Stick with All us. All right, have we'll a good day. More of the stories. Okay, so thank you, caller. So, guys, uh, so Noe and Ruben, tell us about that piece of the wreckage. Well, uh, Colonel Willingham was only able to stay on, on site at the scene of the crashed UFO for approximately 30 minutes, and he was pressured into leaving at gunpoint. Um, and along the way, he had parked, uh, he had uh, landed his plane, um, you know, a short distance away. And, and on his way back to the plane, he and Jack Perkins, um, you know, walked along. And he saw, um, he saw on the ground, littered throughout, of course, there were fragments of metal that he, that he assumed had come from the, from the right. disc. So he, uh, he says he, he looked back at the guards and then he leaned over and just casually picked up a fragment about the size of, of his palm, the palm of his hand, and he stuck it in his flight jacket, uh, in his flight suit, the pocket of his flight suit. Right. And, um, and so he, he made it onto the plane. There seemed to be no reaction about his picking it up, and he, and he and Jack Perkins took off. And it took them much longer to get back to the Fort Worth area because they were, um, they were now going into a headwind. Uh, but when they finally did, and in the days that uh, followed, uh, he had a, a series of tests, or he himself, his dad had worked for many years as a metallurgist for an oil company, and he had the equipment to, to test this, this piece of metal. So he, he said that he, uh, it was very interesting, first of all, it was a curved piece of uh, silver metal um, that... Uh, the it had obviously been broken off from a larger piece or or had come loose from a larger piece the edges on both sides were um had ridges running across it and then the other two ends the front what we would say the front and the back had holes um perforations honeycomb, honeycomb right. in yeah. a honeycomb pattern right uh inspecting it further he what really caught his attention was a honeycomb design, and uh, it was very clear to him that this was unlike any other metal that he had seen um, in any of the planes that he had uh, worked with. And he immediately thought that the honeycomb design was to dispel heat, was designed to dispel heat. There was no question in his mind that this was a um, uh, something that was that was created by an intelligent, you know, by intelligent beings. He tried to cut it, and he told us that a cutting torch runs anywhere from 3,200 to 3,800 degrees Fahrenheit, and all it would do was it would cause the metal to warm up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it would start warming up, but it, it, he said it never yielded to the torch at all. Um, the cutting torch made the metal turn slightly blue for a little bit, but it, it didn't do any lasting damage. Then he tried uh, grinders, and he tried several other ways to perforate or deform uh, the surface of Well, did he office. immediately tell the military that he had this piece? No, he that did he not. Was... No, he mm -hmm. did not. He withheld <laughs> that. He withheld, withheld that, and through his contact at Carswell Air Force Base... Uh, one of his buddies uh, at the base suggested that he try to take it into a um, 
metallurgist lab um, in Maryland, um, metallurgy lab in Maryland. Um, and so he arranged to take it there. And he and his buddy flew the piece of metal to, to the lab in Maryland. And um, he turned it over. This was a government-contracted lab. It wasn't a military institution. It was a, mm-hmm. uh, a contractor. It, so yeah, it was connected he, uh, with uh, Re- uh, Fairchild Republic, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, aviation industries. Uh, go ahead, Noe. So anyway, when he, he turned it over to a gentleman there at the, uh, at the facility, and he knew the the person's name and everything, um, and he was very interested, of course, in the outcome of the testing. So he he called back several times from Texas to Maryland. He called back a few days later, and um, and he was and he was told that uh, the facility had closed down, and that. Um, no, nobody by the name of the person that he handed the medal over to had had ever been employed there. That there was no, no record of that person ever having been employed there, and that the lab had been closed and moved elsewhere in the United States, but they couldn't tell him where. Right, and w- and was Zeckel involved at this point? No, no, Zeckel's. This was uh, 1955 when all this wow. was going okay. on, and Zeckel became involved in the mid to late 70s. Yeah. Did, okay. did Willingham tell the people at the lab the origin of this piece of metal? No, no he did not. Good. Uh, but uh, he, felt, he told us he felt that they figured it out because he was one of the people who had been, you know, the aviators who had seen this and had been debriefed and told not to tell anybody so he figured that that they had a scope on him they were keeping trap I was going to ask you that did he think that he was being followed and stuff yeah he received several disconcerting late night phone calls from Mm -hmm. uh, personnel claiming to be military intelligence reminding him that he was not ever to speak of what he saw along the border and um, so yeah it was very clear to him that um that he was being monitored. So, so he received, out of the blue, he received this um, letter a year or two later uh, with no return address. It was unsigned. And uh, the letter said something to the effect of, I was the person that you turned over the strange piece of metal to, hmm. and I'm not able to say much to you about it, but I will say that I have never seen anything like this ever before, and I don't think it it's from here, which he took to mean from Earth. Right. And that's all. It was just like, you know, a couple of sentences, unsigned, no return address. And uh, when he told Ruben and me the story for the first time, he kind of smiled and he said, I, I know who that was that sent it to me. That was... The person I turned that piece of metal over to. Did the letter have a postmark? We we don't. I know. don't remember what he said about we, that. I, yeah, I don't. The postmark of where, where where it didn't what didn't have a signature, but what, what we do know is that he did take it to Harrisburg, um, up Pennsylvania. in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, I know where that is. Yeah, I know where Mechanicsburg and, is certainly. Yeah, and, and also in the document that. Uh, 
that we have with Todd Zeckel that the uh, the it was connected with the uh, Fairchild Republic, and they were really interested in doing a lot of uh, testing bill of of exotic metals because, as you know, they're a private they are a, a government contractor, right? Planes, missiles, and that. The fact that uh, I would be surprised, obviously, that this was something that really caught their interest since they were very much interested in testing these types of metals for many of the, uh, their development of weapons. Well, um, ha- have you – did Jack Perkins leave any family members? I know he probably died early, but did he leave any family members? I do know that uh, there was an attempt by Zeckel that was trying to get in touch with uh, – when Perkins died in 1973, and we also have the, the ser- his serial number and rank, but the fact that uh, as far as getting in touch with his family, uh, he wasn't able to do so, that that's still a, a possibility for in our research. But what, what, just going back, though, this case, like I said, it's still open. There's still a lot more information. Both Noe and I to talk about maybe perhaps doing a second edition. And in- I think you should. I definitely well, think I think you need to find the, all the Zeckel material in order to proceed. Yeah, somebody's – okay, the, the organizations that he founded, um, I did look NICAP, him up. NICAP is one. Uh, C-A-U-S. Cause. Cause. Right. I've heard of yeah. – okay, now it sounds like this. I mean he starts out as Army Security Agency NNSA where he had a top secret clearance. Okay, he began his career in 1976. Uh, Phoenix-based group. He reminds me a lot of the lawyer out there, I want to say, in Phoenix. Peter Gersten. Exactly. Peter Gersten Gersten might know something about – ah, see that? Okay, now – oh, and then – so so that's how he starts in 1976, um, Phoenix-based group specializing. Uh, He's best known for filing and winning a FOIA lawsuit against the CIA that in 79 forced the CIA to release or acknowledge several thousand documents it had claimed didn't exist. That sounds like a setup, a very convenient setup. It's all, you know, the proper release of information, disinformation. You know, it sounds, I mean, that's an awfully lucky strike for a guy who's just gotten into the field, so to speak. Okay, he's not Stanton Freeman with a lifetime of FOIA or, or, um, and I'm blanking on, uh, forgive Jim me. Jim Sanders. No, I'm uh, B, letter B. Oh, I'll find him right now. Okay. One of our columnists. Uh, who is the FOIA expert? He is the king of FOIA. Uh, he can find anything at anybody, and that's all he does. Um, and I'm losing, I'm losing. He's on the cover of Yofa Magazine every once in a while. And you guys talk amongst yourselves, and oh. I'll find him. Is he a, yeah. an attorney? Also no, no, no. Okay, so so then you've got then you've got the free the FOIA thing he did here, um, and then that led to a very high profile for this guy. Okay, Washington Post. He was interviewed by Jane Pauley, NBC's Today Show. Okay, and then seventy seven. He's working in New York City. Uh, he filed another FOIA, so forth. Anyway, so he's got the goods, it, it looks like. And this cause, the Citizens Against UFO Secrecy, maybe right. they have all the paperwork and would be willing to uh, share them. Um, Just Cause was his newsletter. Um, you know, and he, you know, so these guys talked about the penetration and destruction of NICAP. Now, old-timey UFO folk 
would know way a lot about this stuff. Okay. So the old so timing, my, the better. Right. And so my suggestion is uh, you should contact Peter Gersten, who is in Arizona, and ask him if um, Cause still oh, has sure. any. He could, uh, could put you in touch. I can put you in touch with Peter Gersten and, and find out if um, Cause has any of Todd Zeckel's material. Great. Well, that was an interesting thing about communicating with, with uh, Mr. Zeckel for about a year um, is that he was very, very concerned for his personal safety. And um, at that time, I, I didn't know very much about him, and but I could tell from my phone conversations with him that he was extremely paranoid and he felt he literally felt that everybody was out to get him and he trusted nobody. Well, did he ever yeah. talk to you about the Benowitz case, which was the classic, you no. know, kind of okay. No. He we we talked strictly about the Willingham case and how he really thought that the Willingham case was gonna blow the whole lid off of UFO secrecy. He had the goods on it, he had documents, he had Obviously, a lot more information than when Ruben and I came around a long time later and were trying to work with Colonel Willingham uh, that we didn't have access to the stuff that he had. So, um, so, maybe so one day I, I'm wondering if after he died, the family was threatened because normally the family would release whatever notes that existed. Um, and I'm sure somewhere in Todd Zeckel's possessions, there would be parts of a manuscript that he was writing about this case. He was... Uh, and the guy I want to sick on this is the guy whose name I couldn't remember. His name is Larry Bryant. Oh, Larry and Bryant. Larry Bryant. Maybe you guys know Larry Bryant. He is, without a doubt, the guy who can get... He can help you get stuff. Okay? Says, he kind of knows how to do it. Larry Bryant. It says in, his, in uh, Mr. Zeckel's obituary that he is survived by a sister um, and a brother. So, um, Was he ever married? It says several nieces, nephews, cousins, and aunt, an aunt, other relatives, and friends. Uh, there's no mention of any sons or daughters. Well, um, we have, uh, let's see, we have a little bit left to go. And could you tell us a little bit about how uh, Willoughby, Robert, how did he present this story? Uh, I see a photograph of him in front of a sort of scrapbook. Was he very open about this or was he somebody you had to kind of pry everything out of? No, in fact, uh, he didn't really tell us much the first couple of times that we called him. Uh, we were following up on a lead from um, Bruce Maccabee. Uh, it so happened that uh, Bruce was very interested in the case, and mm -hmm. uh, he thought that there might be a connection between Colonel Willingham's uh, incident and this national UFO alert that was issued in December of 1950, that kind of... Uh, there were mm -hmm. uh, incoming UFOs spotted. Okay, okay. Uh, and, and to that extent, are you familiar with the work of Frank Faschino? Yes, yes. yes okay, that. good. Yeah. So it, at any time, that was, if you guys, that was 1952. Yeah, right, but yeah. Frank's research goes as far as it needs to go, and he continues to research, and we need to have him on the show soon. But 
Uh, if you guys want his contact information, you, you would all like to share stories, I'm sure, and work together. Absolutely, well, and, it, and it all ties in with with this era of time where it, uh, it, within which it does. And there's another aspect to it too, knowing in Ruben um, that there was a national UFO alert in in 1950. Exactly. And in 1950, and you could see this video; it's on YouTube. In 1950, President Harry Truman tells basically the nation, but he's really telling the press, it's 1950, he says, his quote is, these are flying saucers and we know what they are. So this is Harry Truman. This is the president of the United States admitting in public to the press on video, actually on film, that the United States is, knows what flying saucers are and that they exist. Now, right. this is all happening at the time of that national alert about UFOs. Exactly. So, anyway, uh, so uh, Dr. Maccabee thought that there might be a connection. It turned out that, uh, that it, there wasn't really a connection. I mean, there might be at some level, but not directly. And because the Willingham encounter, as far as he can piece together... The data from it occurred closer to 1955, although he didn't, he never remembered the exact, um, you know, the exact mm -hmm. uh, year. Uh, but anyway, um, so when we approached him, be, uh, what we were going by was a NICAP affidavit that he filed in 78. That's all we had to start off with. And uh, Dr. Maccabee telling us that he had recently seen an interview done with Willingham by a Dallas-Fort Worth television station for a series that they were running called The Textiles. It was kind of a takeoff on The X-Files, which was very popular at that time. This was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And so um, so this, this TV station in Dallas-Fort Worth was doing a series of UFO stories that would appear as little features on its nightly newscast called the text files. And one of them was the Colonel, Colonel Willingham story, uh, which was told. And uh, so Dr. Maccabee saw that. He sent that information to us. We contacted the television station and found out the name of the reporter. The reporter told us, well, I can't reveal... You know, I can't give you his personal information of how to contact him, but he does still live in the Wichita Falls area. So then we did some more checking and we finally discovered that he was living at that time in Archer City, Texas, which is just outside of Wichita Falls. And uh, so Ruben and I contacted him several times by phone. He was very hesitant to speak at first and it took a while uh, before he finally... You know, one of the things that one of the things that Ruben that he told Ruben and me was, well, you know what he said at one point, I'm 82 years old, and at this point in my life, I don't really care what what they what they want to do to me. Uh, so, well, uh, did he recognize uh, MUFON or follow the UFO field at all at this point when he was you guys very, met him? Yeah, he was very active when Todd Zeckel was in the picture uh, mm -hmm. in the late 70s and early 80s, and he even appeared at several gatherings of uh, the organizations that uh, Mr. Zeckel was affiliated and, with. And do you think he stayed in touch with Bruce Maccabee throughout all this? Um, I don't think that... Uh, I don't think that 
Dr. Maccabee ever contacted him directly. I think he had uh, information that he had received from Mr. Zeckel and from other sources about Willingham, but I don't think they ever communicated. At least that's the impression I got. Okay, have, you spoken, have you spoken to Bruce at any length about Zeckel? Because I'm wondering if, if, uh, if uh, Bruce Maccabee may have more information from Zeckel that is just sitting there. Well, that's a we, good thought. We haven't really pursued that. He, he did write the preface uh, in our book. Um, Forward, yeah, that know, I know. Like, yeah, and right. he mentioned, and he did mention his uh, his uh, briefly about Todd Zeckel, but the, the, this is why it all tends to see. It seems like we we need to really go back into looking well, at Doctor Maccabee's opinion. Always was that he felt Todd Zeckel was essentially a very dedicated and very um, thorough investigator. So. Mm. I mean, he and not well, see, a disinformation see, Bruce, kind of guy. Yeah, he never, but see, Bruce, yeah. But see, Bruce knew Todd Zeckel. That was uh, that's my take on it. Yes, because yes. Bruce knew because Bruce knew all the folks from Cause and from Ground Saucer Watch and 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 places like that. And so my feeling is Bruce and and Bruce will answer questions when asked those questions, as opposed to. You're right. Up with stuff, so right. I think I think a, a nice long conversation with Bruce Maccabee would be very very fruitful, because you may find ways to track material that Todd Zeckel might have handed over to Cause. Yes, mm-hmm. Bruce, that material is is definitely out there somewhere, Bill, and we've got to. Yeah, that's a very good way to approach it. I I think we need to do that. Well, I also think it's helpful to anybody listening. Um, that people like Ruben, and probably it's not an easy thing to say, I will take your files, because I can can just imagine what a mess it can be. You know, I can actually hear file cabinets opening and closing as we speak, because (laughs) it's, uh, and I also have a ton of stuff. People send me things. They just assume that I'll do something with them, and I do. I keep everything. I just haven't organized it. So if folks wanted to send anything to Ruben, uh, his Facebook page is linked up on tonight's show, so you can find him that way. And I am putting up the link to uh, a page I have found very useful. I think I don't know who, which of you guys wrote it, but it's, a, it's a, like a Wikipedia-type page um, that oh, Bill really? sent me. It's called Be- Bejnar Sandbox Del Rio, Texas UFO Crash. Well, that's an interesting thing, Nancy. Uh, Ruben and I wrote the original Wikipedia article on the Colonel Willingham case, which was on Wikipedia for two or three years, and then suddenly it was taken down. Ah. Uh, now, Wikipedia is extremely rough on anything UFO-related. I'm sure I know. you all have heard I know. that. Yeah, tell me and, about it. Uh, but, but worse, and. guys, bad people, people who have bad, people have reasons to cover things up. Let's just say that. People who don't want the truth to come out, if there is a truth. I mean, I think the most, wouldn't you guys be willing to say, if there's nothing here, it's all government stuff, there you go. You're researchers, exactly. and you're not saying ahead of time what you want to find. You want to find the truth of this. Well, when, when Wikipedia, Wikipedia puts, is not our friend. No, they're yeah. not. They're not, and, and it's amazing because when I, in my many attempts to contact them about this and other cases, mm-hmm. 
they always take the attitude of, well, there is no deep, dark group that controls Wikipedia. We're just volunteers. We're people mm -hmm. like you, everyday people. Well, why is this, this, why does it have such a strong bias mm -hmm. against UFOs and, and all things paranormal if it's well, just regular you, people? I can, I can tell you personally, when UFO magazine was going down, and if you listen to Future Theater in those days, back in the day, Future Theater's been on now for five years or more. They're about five years. Uh, you will hear UFO magazine is going down. It didn't. It wasn't a sudden su something. Well, there was. There were the most obscene Wikipedia entries. They wouldn't stay up for long, and I copied them. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, I took screen grabs of them, and they're shocking in what they say is complete one hundred percent lies. Somebody gets through to Wiki, they put it up, and then the people who care about the truth have to tediously politic and petition to put the right stuff back up. It's not worth it after a while. I just say let them let them go. So tell me, how did you preserve therefore the original story that you put up? How did you preserve well, this? It looks like wiki. It's something different. Well, when they put it in the sandbox, that means it's been taken offline and it's just uh, there for oh. it's just there for reference purposes or if anybody challenges um, why they took it offline. But after all all our efforts to find out what exactly happened, the way they justified it in the end was because Ruben and I have written a book about the case. Mm -hmm. We are not qualified to write an encyclopedia article about it. Wow. So, in other words, because we're experts about the case, that disqualifies us from writing. Wow. I mean, I didn't understand it, but they, yeah. they said, well, you have a vested interest because people yep. will buy your books. If right, somebody, somebody with a brain who's listening to our show, it's not going to be any of us. We're awfully busy. Somebody should do an alternate wiki, the wiki that, uh, that's been uh, denied us, you know. Exactly. Um, and I would suggest to you guys, uh, I'm going to put the link up to this particular page, this page of the sandbox that is still intact. I would suggest people completely copy this page out into their own files, right, so it doesn't go away suddenly. You can no, put it up on your own Dropbox, or you could put it up on a. There is actually a site where you can pay five bucks a year or something, which I, and, and they'll keep all your pages for you. But if I had a lot of time and resources, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would love to start a UFO wiki mm -hmm. devoted entirely to UFO stories. And I know there's been several attempts to do something like there that, but. I, I don't think anything has really taken off. There's bits and pieces of really good well, stuff you know, all over the net. Right, exactly. And the stuff that gets censored is sometimes pure UFO, sometimes not so pure UFO, sometimes weird stuff. Like this orb phenomenon is yes. is much newer. And when you say that he first thought he saw an orb, the, the other pilots thought they saw an orb, is fascinating because clearly he saw a crashed saucer. Well, what strikes me was how similar that is to the RB-47 incident just right around the same time, um, that there was this fascination with uh, uh, the B-47s. At, at that point, were um, I'm trying to think of when the B-52s were first introduced, but the B-47 Stratofortress was um, one of our nation's top bombers, top heavy bombers. Yeah. And... Um, 
the reconnaissance version of that, the heavily electronic version of that, was the RB-47, the reconnaissance B-47. And they had a UFO incident, which to this day, really, even though the professional debunkers come out from under the floorboards to try and debunk it, every piece of technology that they bring up to debunk it fails because it makes no sense on a plausibility index that all these things would happen right about the same time. But the big discussion is this was a bright floating light, a bright flowing, floating bluish light that went from one side of the aircraft in front of the aircraft to the other side of the aircraft tracked by the most sophisticated radar, the most sophisticated electronic intelligence that the United States had it at its disposal, it disappeared off the radar, it reappeared on the radar, it tracked the plane, ground radar picked this thing up all the way across the country heading toward Texas from the Gulf. So this was a fascinating story right about the same time as the uh, Del Rio case. So uh, one other question, Bill, that comes up that it just uh, what you were saying just now kind of jogged my memory. What, what was it that brought the UFO down uh, in the Willingham case? And we went over that with the colonel. And um, he definitely he told us that there was a definite wobble that developed. As he was following that object down toward Del Rio, he saw it start to wobble and seemed to be having difficulty maintaining level flight. Now he it really puzzled him. He um you know, he he knew that we had no kind of aircraft that could make a 90 degree angle turn without slowing down from approximately 2000 miles per hour. So, uh when he first told us the story, he said, "Well, perhaps that sharp turn that it made without slowing down might have contributed to its uh it's going down shortly afterward. He he was uh, totally unclear about it, but it is another pu puzzling aspect of the story. He, he, if I recall, no, he said it was start, slowly starting to fall apart. Little, yeah, he, he saw debris coming off of it even yeah. before it crashed, so something went wrong. So we asked him, could it have been intercepted by U.S. aircraft prior to entering airspace over Texas? And of course, yeah. we don't know, and he had no knowledge of that. But there was a lot of radio chatter about it, and it was being pursued at an earlier point in its trajectory. So We do know that in the Japanese transcript that when the object uh, crashed, it was embedded in the sand. Mm -hmm. And what Willingham mentioned was that he, he said it was approximately 32 feet in diameter. So Well, when you say it was... When you say it was being pursued, what do you mean by that? Well, his impression from the radio chatter um, was that there were aircraft in, in the sky that were observing it. Uh, the, the military radio band that was being used was, was, I mean, the chatter that he was listening to was from other aviators, he assumed. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, yeah, and, and, and I just didn't realize I've lost track of time, and this has been so, such a wonderful show. Uh, I want to quickly tell folks, go to futuretheater.com, and you'll, you'll get all the links you need, all the links we talked about tonight, the books, and the Willingham wiki, etc. 
Um, and guys, what are you work? We have to close up. Is what I have to say. We're done. Right, and so and so you're continuing your research into this case, and um, obviously, I, I wish you the best of luck in 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 getting a hold of more Todd Zeckel material. I would try Michael Swords. I try Peter Gerson. I try Bruce McAbee. Yes. Um, and uh, coming up after the show is Art Bell. I don't know who Art Bell's guest is tonight. A good friend, but, David Politis. Okay, great. So that's Art Bell's guest tonight. And um, we have to go off the air. So we are Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and uh, PSN Radio. Saying to everybody, have a wonderful evening, and we will see you next week. Thank you to Ruben and thank you to Noe. 